start. Okay, we're good. Okay, I think we're good. Good evening, everybody. So, uh, after uh, giving last week's class, I uh, and last week I mentioned that the Torah warns a king not to have too many wives and not to accumulate too many horses and provides rationales for these warnings. So I then stated how King Solomon, Shlomo HaMelech, the wisest of all kings, thought he could beat the system and he failed. We learned that Shlomo HaMelech took many wives and he confidently stated that he's not going to let them lead him astray. Yet we see in the Navi the fact that in his old age, the Navi writes that the wives led him astray. Also, Shlomo HaMelech accumulated many horses and he declared that they wouldn't lead him back to Egypt. Yet here too, the Navi writes that he returned to Egypt. So I was uh, very critical, I guess, of Shlomo HaMelech. And after the class, uh, I, 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 me- I mentioned that uh, a friend called and he said I was absolutely wrong to call Shlomo HaMelech a failure and pointed to the statements of the rabbis that we don't dare believe that Shlomo HaMelech didn't convert his wives. And he told me, you know, watch out because Shlomo HaMelech is going to be very upset with you. And uh, this happened uh, Wednesday night after the class. And, you know, I was thinking about it Wednesday night. And uh, it bothered me to the point where I had a very scary dream. And I told everybody about it in the synagogue on Saturday night. But to understand the dream, someone needs to be privy to what was rolling around in my mind. So in regretting my condemnation of King Solomon, I recall two stories that uh, Rabbi Rabbi Abitan told us. And those two stories really added to my anxiety. The first one is from Igrot Moshe, the works of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. And the second one is from the Gemara itself. So, the, oh, thank you. The, <laughs> one second. Try to let people in. Uh, um, the first one is from uh, Igrot Moshe, the works of Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. The second one is from, uh, from the Gemara. So in the first story, and I'm, I'm giving you an adaptation of the story, which was uh, written up by Yerachmiel Tillis, I, I saw it was easier than trying to just give it over. He writes that in, in November 1921, when Rabbi Moshe Feinstein was the chief rabbi of the town of Luban, a certain Torah scholar from the town fell seriously ill. He had an unusual disease. The man's main symptom was that his tongue swelled up enormously and the doctors couldn't figure it out. Soon the man was on his deathbed and he was really ready to die from his illness. So Rav Moshe Weinstein came to visit the man. As soon as he came into the sick man's room, the man sent everyone else out saying that he had to speak with the rabbi in private. After everyone left, the sick man turned to Rav Moshe and told him that he knows why he contracted this bizarre illness. It quickly became clear that talking was difficult for him because of his tongue. He said that the week before, when the weekly reading was Vayera, he had given a sermon in which he berated the daughters of Lot of Lot for what they had done. In his sermon, he spoke very harshly about their act. He criticized them, especially especially uh, for the brazenness for the older one naming her son Moab after the deed, 
which means from my father, and thereby publicizing to everyone what she did. He questioned why they merited to have the Mashiach descend from them. We know that from Moab comes comes Ruth, and from uh, <coughs> from uh, from Ammon comes. We, from Ammon, we see through the descendants of Ammon, we have Rehovam, and we go from there, we see that uh, the Mashiach, in, in essence, is coming through Ammon and Moab. So he questions, what merited them to have the Mashiach descend from them, considering what they did? He then related to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein that the night before, two elderly women came to him in a dream, and they identified themselves as the daughters of Lot. They were very upset at the way he spoke about them and wanted to respond. They told him that he should not accuse them of being depraved and committing such a shameful act. He should have considered they're from the family of Abraham Avinu. Everything they did had a purpose. So in his dream, he said they explained to him that they thought they were the last people on earth to to survive the destruction. They had to come up with some plan, some way to ensure the continuity of mankind. And that required them to commit such an act, even though it was horrible. According to their perspective, they had no choice. Nevertheless, when during their pregnancy they realized that it was only the population of these five cities on the Dead Sea that had been wiped out, they felt they had to publicize what they had done. They were afraid that if they did not, future generations might make a deity out of any child born to them, for they would consider it a virgin birth. After all, no other man was in the entire area. Surely no one would believe they slept with their own father, the brother of Sarah, the brother-in-law of Abraham. So to avoid the result of of people thinking it was a virgin birth, and possibly making some, some religion out of the mother and, and, and the, the child, they decided that what did they have to do? They had to publicize what they did, no matter how shameful, in order to ensure that everyone understood that there's no such thing as a birth without the father. So the older daughter named the first baby Moab from my father. She concluded that this is exactly the reason why she merited it to be the great-great-grandmother of Ruth and the great-great-grandmother of King David because she had so much self-sacrifice in agreeing to embarrass herself in displaying what she named her child. Lastly, they said to him, this is why you have been punished through your tongue, midah keneged midah, measure for measure. Because you spoke harsh words about us, you're being punished. He concluded telling the story to Rabbi Moshe Feinstein. He turned to the wall and he passed away. This is the story that Rabbi Moshe Feinstein tells. That, that this rabbi spoke disparagingly about the daughters of Lot. And look what happened to him. So imagine, I'm thinking this. My friend just told me, you spoke terribly about Shlomo HaMelech. If this is what happened to someone who spoke about the daughters of Lot, what's going to happen to you that you spoke bad about Shlomo HaMelech? The second story comes to us from the Gemara and Sanhedrin. As a prelude to the story, it's important to remember that Menashe, the king Menashe, he ruled Yehuda 
for 55 years. He was a descendant of King David. His father was Chizkiyahu. Remember, his father didn't want to have children because he knew he would have a wicked child. And he was going to die because he refused to have children. And the prophet came to him and said, you're going to die. He turned to the wall. He cries and he's saved. And he has two sons. And he takes them every day on his shoulders to learn. And he tries to raise them to be great. And what happens? One of them is Menashe. And Menashe was the king for 55 years, the longest ruling king. He lived longer than any king of Yehuda. And according to the Nevi'im, according to the Tanakh, the portrait that is painted of, of, uh, of, of Menashe is he's a mass murderer. He's an idol worshiper. His reign was so tainted that it would be the cause of the destruction of the temple by Bavel. Furthermore, we're told, there are three kings that have no portion in Olam Haba in the world to come. These are Yerobam, Ben Nevat, Achav, and Menashe, this very Menashe. So with this in mind, the Gemara tells us a story. One day, Rav Ashi is ending his lecture to his students. And he says to his students, tomorrow we're going to begin the class and we're going to discuss our friends, our chaverim, our friends, our colleagues, the three kings noted above. That night, Rav Ashi went to sleep. He had a dream. Menashe, the king of Yehuda, came and appeared to the rabbi in the dream. Menashe said to him angrily, you called us your chaverim, your colleagues, the colleagues of your father. How dare you, Rav Ashi, characterize yourself as equal to us? So Menashe said to him, I want to ask you a simple question on halacha, you great rabbi. When one cuts the bread, when one makes the blessing, when he's going to eat the bread, which part of the loaf is one supposed to cut from? Where do you begin cutting? Rav Ashi said to him, I don't know. Menashe said to him, even this from where one is required to begin cutting a loaf of bread when reciting Hamotzi Lechem Min Haaretz, you don't know? And you call yourself a learned scholar? You equate yourself with us? So Rav Ashi said to Menashe, please teach me the halacha. Tomorrow, I'm going to give the class and I'm going to cite the halacha in your name also during my public lecture delivered on the Chag when all the people are going to be there. So Menashe explained to him, one cuts the loaf from where it crusts as a result of baking. So the hard part, the more well done part is where we, we cut the bread. It's interesting to note in the laws of blessings on bread, the Bet Yosef quotes the law from here and directs us accordingly as we see in the Shulchan Aruch and later books of Halakha. I was looking in Shulchan Aruch HaRab and he brings the whole thing. Where to cut the bread? And all of this is based on this conversation that Rav Ashi has in a dream with Menashe who comes to yell at him and say, how dare you call me your chaver? Rav Ashi then sent to Menashe, I don't understand. Since you're so wise, since you're so engaged in Torah, since you knew so much, 
How is it possible for someone to engage in the worship of idols? Menashe said to him, you know, I have to remember that the rabbis tell us that after the destruction of the Beth HaMikdash, the ta'ava, the desire to worship idols was removed from us. So Menashe says to him, had you been there at that time when the ta'ava was there, you would have taken and lifted the hem of your cloak and run after me due to the fierce desire to engage in idol worship and due to the fact that it was so common, so common then. And he wakes up. The next day, Rav Ashi said to the rabbis, as a prelude to the lecture, we're going to begin today to discuss our teachers, those kings who were greater than us in Torah knowledge, but whose sins caused them to lose their share in Olam Abba. So with these stories in mind, I went to sleep. I went to sleep thinking, oh boy, I, I was not nice in Shlomo HaMelech. Another factor is, I changed my medicine schedule. When changing medicine schedule, at least me, it messes up my sleep. So that night, I was thinking about Shlomo HaMelech, I was thinking about the class, I was thinking about the daughters of Lot, I was thinking about that rabbi with Rav Moshe Feinstein, I was thinking about Rav Ashi in the Gemara, and I was having trouble going to sleep, which usually I don't, and then I fell asleep. I woke up at 3 o'clock, which is a little too early for me, so I said, you know, i got to go back to sleep. And then I started thinking again about all these things, I fell asleep and my imagination conjured up a voice, some unseen person, and the voice was Shlomo HaMelech. And Shlomo HaMelech, in my imagination, because I don't think Shlomo HaMelech really came to me, said to me, my child, why do you disparage your father? You think that God protects you from sin and you're less than nothing? Do you imagine he wouldn't protect me, who he calls his Yedid, his dear one? Had you only learned from your own notes on the portion you would understand and appreciate my actions. You only have your laziness to blame for your foolishness. Well, harsh message, okay? It was me telling myself that I'm an idiot. So I wake up, it's 4.30 in the morning, that's it. Night's over, time to get up. So I go downstairs, and before I'm going to leave, I say I have to pull out a sefer and see what's going on. So I pull out from the closet a sefer called Shem Veneshama. This sefer was a book, was a gift to me from Rav Moshe Basri, who's the author. Rav Moshe Basri was with me one day, you know, many guests would come to the Suffer Synagogue, and I was giving a class one morning with many people there. And we were discussing Gilgul Neshamot, and we were going through an example of this person who became this person and that person, and have all these proofs based on the Arizal. At the end of the class, him and his son walk over to me and go, how do you know this stuff? I don't know anything. I'm a tape recorder. Whatever I got from my rabbis, whatever I get, I can give over. I don't know anything. He says, no, but all of this is from my book. I said, what do you mean? The next day he came back. He brought me this incredible book on the transmigration of souls. It's really like the Bible. So in my newsletter this week, I put a link to it, but it's in Hebrew, but it's amazing. Anyway, then I, I said, but you know, he said something about it in my, in my, in my notes on the Perashah. So did I have see something that I that I didn't remember, was there something there? So still I was in the house, I logged onto my computer in the office, I logged into my files. Now I have a file 
basically a file in every perashah, every holiday. And each file, each perashah, each holiday, I have literally, I don't know, maybe hundreds, hundreds of, of classes and articles on that perashah, that, that, so that I can go back and go to a specific perashah and pull it up and I have all of the notes from the last 25 years. And I go into it and I type in Shelomo and I get nothing. And I say, wait, what am I doing? It might be here. So I typed in Shlomo without the E. <laughs> and what happened? I pulled up a class that was given three years ago by really by our teacher, the incredible rabbi, Rabbi Pinchas Friedman. And right there was the answer. King Solomon was right and I am an idiot. And I said, how much do we not understand? How much do we need to learn? And on, on Shabbat, on Shabbat, on Saturday night, Leon uh, was there, he could attest. I gave over the, the answer to our class. And I think that everybody really was somewhat amazed at the answer. So before we go to the regular class, I'm trying to hope we have enough time. We're going to see. I'm going to give you this and we'll go forward. The Gemara Sanhedrin tells us, Rabbi Yitzchak discusses the fact that the Torah did not reveal ta'ameha mitzvot, the, the rationale behind the mitzvot. And the rabbi points out that the Torah didn't reveal the reasons for the mitzvot, for two specific, he says there were two specific mitzvot that it did reveal the reasons. And what happened is the Torah reveals the reasons for these mitzvot and we see a terrible tragedy. The Torah warns a king not to have too many wives and not to accumulate too many horses. And it gives a rationale for each warning. Shlomo HaMelech took many wives, and he said that he would, they wouldn't lead him astray. Yet what happens? The Tanakh specifically says that his wives led him astray in his old age. He accumulated many horses, and he said, don't worry, they're not going to lead me back to Egypt. And yet again, the Tanakh, the Navi, says that he returned to Egypt. So, so, so what's, what's going on? So the, the rabbi is saying the problem with when you give a reason, someone's going to say, well, that reason's not going to apply to me. And therefore, I can go ahead and do it. It seems that this is what Shlomo HaMelech did. And what happened seems based on the words of the Tanakh, the words of the Navi, that he did wrong. The statement is also brought down in a Midrash. But the Midrash is something absolutely beautiful. In the Midrash, it says, Amar Rashbi, Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, the author of the Zohar, he says, Noach lo l'shlomo, it would have been more pleasant for Shlomo HaMelech that he would be cleaning the gutters. Shelo nikhtav alav hamikra hazeh, that instead of having this verse said about him, that his wives led him astray. So the question we have to ask when it comes to Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, when it comes to Rashbi, why would he choose this example? Better for him to clean the gutters. Why the example of cleaning the gutters to make his point? But even more surprising is the fact that Shlomo HaMelech, the wisest of all men, chose to disregard the specific prohibition from the Torah he chose to disregard the prohibition that says a king should not take too many wives. The Torah warns they will inevitably lead him to astray. Yet Shlomo HaMelech was convinced he's strong enough to avoid 
being led astray. He was surely aware of the words of Hillel, the wisdom of the Mishnah. What does Hillel say? Don't believe in yourself until the day of a person's demise. Clearly, Shlomo HaMelech, he was a Sadiq. So what happened? At the beginning of the reign of Shlomo HaMelech, HaKadosh Baruch Hu appears to Shlomo in a dream. Remember, Shlomo takes over the kingdom from his father at the tender age of 12. And Hashem said to this young boy, Shlomo HaMelech, Hashem says to Shlomo, request what I should give you. Ask anything of me and it's yours. And Shlomo Melch turns to Hashem in the dream and he says, I don't know how to go out and come in. Basically he's saying, Hashem, I'm a kid. I don't know anything. My father knew everything. Please Hashem, grant me, grant your servant an understanding heart in order that I could judge your people in order for me to distinguish between good and evil. For who could judge this formidable people of yours? And Hashem in the dream was very happy with Shlomo. So Hashem said to him, because you requested this, and you did not request length of days, you did not request to live a long life, you did not request riches, you did not request that your enemies be destroyed, you requested understanding to comprehend justice, Mishpat, which we spoke about last week. Behold, I've acted in accordance with your words, and I've given you a wise and understanding heart, such that there has never been, and such as there will never be again. So he, he gets this. Furthermore, even the things that you didn't ask me for, I'm giving you. I'm going to give you rich in honors, such as there's never been and such as there never will be. So it's unbelievable. Hashem gave Shlomo chokhmah, says the Tanakh, considerable binah, understanding, a breath of heart as immense as the sand which is upon the seashore. And the Tanakh, the Navi, goes down to say that Shlomo's wisdom, his chokhmah, surpassed the chokhmah of all the B'nai Kedem, all the people of the East, all the chokhmah of Egypt. He was wiser than all men. They came from all the nations of the world to hear the Chokhmah of Shlomo HaMelech. So why does, did this make him believe that he wouldn't mess up? We learned in the Gemara and Sota, En Adam over Avera, Ela Imken Nichnas Bo, Ruach Shtut. A person does not commit a sin unless he's possessed by a, a whim of insanity. In other words, so long as a person judges situations wisely, he judges with his heart, he foresees the consequences of his actions, that person's not going to sin. Shlomo HaMelech saw that Hashem deviated from the norm. He recorded rationale behind these specific mitzvot. Shlomo HaMelech included that the prohibitions shouldn't apply to a king who was sure not to stray because he wouldn't violate the commandments of Hashem. He was certain he wouldn't be possessed by a foolish whim. Therefore, he relied on Hashem's promise. Hashem promised him and said, I gave you a wise heart. 
So Shalomo said, if I have a wise heart, I'm not going to be a person of shlut. I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to fall victim. I'm going to be able to have multiply and not stray. So we explain how indeed Shlomo HaMelech's wives did succeed in swaying his heart. We have to see and understand the Gemara in Shabbat. The Gemara says there, and this is the word which that worried me, anyone who says the Shlomo HaMelech's sin is simply mistaken. So how do I interpret the words of the Tanakh of the Navi that he grew old and his wives swayed his heart? Remember, he didn't grow very old. Shlomo HaMelech ruled for 40 years. He began when he was 12. He ruled for 40 years, which means he died at 52. He wasn't such an old man. So the Pasuk is saying, so it was when, the, when, the, when Shlomo grew old, his wives swayed his heart to follow other gods. But the Gemara says he didn't follow. But the question is, it's written, Shlomo did what was sinful in the eyes of Hashem. And the Gemara explains, no, what he did wrong was his wives were worshipping Abu Dazara, the Abu Dazara that they came from. And he should have objected to his wives, and he did not object. And because he did not object and meddle within their affairs, the Tanakh regards him as if he sinned. So we see that Shlomo HaMelech did not actually sin himself. He possessed a wise heart. He knew the consequences of sin. But he failed to comprehend the added implication, right? He, he failed to understand that because he had so many wives, he wouldn't be involved with them. He wouldn't object to their evil ways. And as a consequence, it was looked upon as if he sinned. Remember, he married these wives for specific reasons. He married these wives so that his influence would extend around the world. He looked at it as he's Shlomo. He's the one after David. He's Shalem. He's the completion. And now through these wives, he could bring all the world to connect to him. But he really wasn't involved with them. And if we think of his lack of involvement, because he didn't want to be so involved with them and their ideas and their ways. So if we think of the statement of Rav Shimon Bar Yochai, Shlomo HaMelech would have preferred to clean gutters than to have this pasuk written about him. He would have rather cleaned gutters than have the pasuk saying that his wives swayed his heart. See, Shlomo did not object to his wives because he didn't want to get close to them because he didn't want to be corrupted by their evil ways. It's like someone who refused to clean the filth in the gutters because he doesn't want to get dirty. So Rashbi is informing us that Shlomo HaMelech would gladly have gotten dirty by cleaning up the filth of the iniquities of the wives that he had so it wouldn't have been written about him. His wives swayed his heart, which implies that he failed to protest against their evil ways. So at least we have some understanding of what's going on with Shlomo HaMelech. He thinks he's not going to fail. In fact, he doesn't fail in the way we think. And he wants to stay away. But in staying away, it's as if he failed. Because then he could have fixed them. He could have fixed them, and that would have made the difference. This is the next question. What prompted Shlomo HaMelech to marry Paro's daughter? And when did he marry her? He married her specifically 
on the night that he completed the building of the Ben HaMikdash and celebrated the inauguration. Now Ramban teaches us that the, that the daughter of Parol, like the other wives, was certainly converted according to Halakha, or the Halakha was at the time. But as a consequence of the marriage, HaKadosh Baruch Hu, so remember, Shlomo HaMelech is building the Bet HaMikdash. The night of the inauguration, the next morning we're going to open up the Bet HaMikdash, that night, what does he do? He gets married to the daughter of, of Aro. And what happens is HaKadosh Baruch Hu decrees that the Bet HaMikdash will be destroyed as we learn in the Gemara. The Gemara says something unbelievable. It says, That time, the hour that Shlomo HaMelech married the daughter of Paro, Yarad Gabriel, Gabriel came down from heaven, and he stuck a reed by Yam, and, he, and, and what happened was a mound raised up, and upon it was built the city of Rome. At the time of the building of the Bet HaMikdash, at the moment that he married the daughter of Paro, Rome was created. At the inaugural ceremony for the Bet HaMikdash, Hashem already planned for both the destruction of the first Bet HaMikdash by Bavel and the second Bet HaMikdash by Edom, by Rome. The Midrash writes further, on the very night that Shlomo HaMelech completed the construction of the Bet HaMikdash, he married Batya Batparo. Interesting name. Batya Batparo. There was the rejoicing related to the festivity of the Bet HaMikdash, and there was the rejoicing relating to the festivity of the marriage to Bat Paro. And the festivity for the marriage to Bat Paro surpassed the festivity of the Bet HaMikdash. Says the Midrash, at that moment, Hashem considered destroying Yerushalayim. The rabbi said, what did Bat Paro do? She spread a sort of a net above the bed of Shlomo HaMelech. And within the net, she placed a variety of precious stones, of pearls, of reflective rocks. And they would shine like the stars and constellations. Every time Shlomo HaMelech wanted to get up, he would see the stars and constellations. He would think it was still the middle of the night and he would sleep a little bit more until four hours of the day. The problem was it was already four hours of the day. And the Korban Tamid was to be offered at the fourth hour of the day. B'nai Israel were very sad because it was the day of the inauguration of this new Bet HaMikdash. And they couldn't perform the ceremony. Shlomo HaMelech was still asleep. And they were afraid because who wants to wake up the king and get, get killed? So what did they do? What do you do if you have to get a king to come do the right thing? Who do you go tell him? Who do you tell to? So they ran to his mother to Batsheva and they told Batsheva his son is still sleeping we want to open the bed of Mikdash and Batsheva went she woke him she admonished him it seems unimaginable that Shlomo HaMelech 
The person who authored the book of Mishle, Proverbs, the book of Kohelet, the book of Shir Hashirim, Song of the Songs, who the rabbis say is Kodesh HaKodashim, whose insight and Kiddushah brightened the skies of Yadut, of Judaism, throughout all the generations. How could he have been so remiss? Specifically, on the very day that he completed the building of the Bet HaMikdash, how could Shlomo HaMelech have combined, you know, we say, don't combine Simachot, we say, right? So how could he have combined the celebration and the joy of the completion of the Bet HaMikdash with the joy and the celebration of his marriage to the daughter of Parot, to the Bat Parot? How could he have done it to the point where the joy of the marriage to Bat Parot would have passed the joy related to the Bet HaMikdash? Rabbeinu Hari, he explains and he writes in Sefer HaGil Bulim, and I saw this also in the book Shem Uneshama, Shlomo HaMelech was in Nitzotz of Moshe Rabbeinu. He was a spark of Moshe Rabbeinu. Also, Batya, the daughter of Paro, her evil part was reincarnated into the daughter of Paro, who Shlomo HaMelech wed. And I think this is why the Midrash also calls her Batya. Shlomo HaMelech intended to rectify, to repair the evil part of Batya that remained. What happened was the opposite transpired. He was misled. Therefore, what happens to Shalom HaMelech? Explains Rabbeinu Ha'ari. He is reincarnated in as the Navi Yirmiyahu. Yirmiyahu has a spark of him and, and Moshe Rabbeinu. And the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed during the life of Yirmiyahu. The Bet HaMikdash that Shalom HaMelech built, he saw destroyed as Yirmiyahu. We also see that Yirmiyahu was dragged down to Egypt. And he died in Egypt. Shlomo HaMelech was in Nitzotz, a holy spark of the Neshama of Moshe Rabbeinu. Batya, the daughter of Paro, rescued him from the Nile. The Arizal teaches us that only her good part returned to the realm of Kiddushah. We, say, we see in the Torah, it tells us, bat paro al The daughter of Paro went... To wash at the river. What was happening at the Yeor, at the at the, the Nile? The Gemara Megillah says, Batya went to cleanse herself of the Avodah Zarah of the father's house. The evil part of her being, however, was not rectified during the lifetime of Moshe. That evil part reincarnated into the daughter of Parod during the time of Shlomo HaMelech. Therefore, what happens? Shlomo HaMelech, who's a nitzotz, who's a spark of Moshe Rabbeinu, has an incredible desire to rectify the evil part of Batya as well. He wanted to demonstrate his gratitude to her for, for what she did for him in a previous life. Nevertheless, the evil part of her was so strong that Shlomo HaMelech's efforts were not successful. To understand more, let's visit with the Megaleh Amukot. He explains, Moshe's request. Moshe turns to Hashem before he's going to die. And he says to Hashem, please Hashem, 
Let me cross and see the good land that is on the other side of the Yarden. This good mountain refers to Yerushalayim. Ahar Hatov, Yerushalayim. And he says the Lebanon. What's the Lebanon? The white refers to the Bet HaMikdash. And Hashem responds to Moshe Rabbeinu, Ravlach, enough Moshe. Don't continue to speak to me concerning this. Let us explain. We have learned that the enemies of Israel were powerless to act against the handiwork of Moshe Rabbeinu. <clears throat> when the Bet HaMikdash was built, the Mishkan was stored away along with all of the vessels that Moshe crafted in the Midbar. When the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, Hashem poured out His wrath on the wooden stones, the physical structure, but spared Yisrael from annihilation. So remember, the vessels that Moshe built, the Mishkan that Moshe built, was stored away. That wasn't destroyed. The Bet HaMikdash was destroyed. And when the Bet HaMikdash was destroyed, Hashem destroyed that and poured out His wrath on the sticks and stones as opposed to the people. We have as an explanation Mizmor and Tehillim. Mizmor the Asaf. Elohim ba'u goyim benachalatecha. We read this on Tisha Be'av. Asaf was writing about the goyim who came into the sanctuary. But it says Mizmor, a song. It's not a dirge, it's a song. So they said to Asaf, the Holy One destroyed the Bet HaMikdash. He destroyed the sanctuary. You're sitting around and composing songs? And Asaf replied, I'm rejoicing that HaKadosh Baruch who poured out His wrath upon wooden sticks and stones rather than upon Yisrael. We know had Moshe Rabbeinu entered the land, had Moshe Rabbeinu built the Bet HaMikdash, Hashem would not have been able to take out His wrath on the physical structure. This is implied by HaKadosh Baruch's response to Moshe. What does he say to Moshe? Rav Lach, Moshe, your spiritual level is too great. The enemies of Israel cannot destroy the work of your hand. Therefore, Moshe, I can't allow you to cross the Yarden. I can't allow you to build the Bet HaMikdash. Otherwise, I can't pour my wrath out against the building. I have to pour it out against the people. Shlomo HaMelech is a nitzotz of Moshe. He yearns to be on the, on the spiritual level of Moshe Rabbeinu. He yearns to build a Bet HaMikdash that's going to endure forever. In this manner, Shlomo HaMelech intended, remember Shlomo HaMelech, he's Shalem, he's the king after David, he's the one it's all about. He intends to eliminate all of the Galuyot and to hasten the future Geulah. He's going to eliminate all the exiles that wait and will come. He's going to bring the final redemption. But however, since he wasn't on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu, his handiwork wouldn't necessarily endure for all eternity. But more important than anything, no matter how much he desired, the fact is that the Geulah, the fact is that the Geulah had not yet arrived. <clears throat> What's happening? 
Oh, that's right. The Gilgah had not yet arrived. It says, Bikesh Kohelet. Kohelet uh, requested. He wanted to find words of, 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 of endearment. Bikesh Kohelet liyot kemoshe. Kohelet wanted, Shlomo HaMelech wanted to be like Moshe. A heavenly voice came came forth and said to him, Never again, The heavenly voice informed Moshe and informed Shlomo HaMelech that there's never anyone like Moshe. And you're not Moshe in building this Bet HaMikdash. So we still want to understand why Shlomo HaMelech married the daughter of Paroah with such pomp and circumstance on the very night that he completed the Ben HaMikdash. The Navi writes, V'haya bayom ha'hu, Yitka'ba shofar gadol, U'ba'u ha'ovdim be'eretz ashur, V'hanedachim be'eretz Mitzrayim. V'haya bayom ha'hu, will be that day. We're going to blow the great shofar. And the lost ones will come from the land of Ashur, the, the 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 lowest ones and what are they going to do? They're going to worship Hashem on the holy mountain in Yerushalayim. According to the Bnei Sachar, the Navi is referring to the Rishaim that perished in Mitzrayim during the three days of darkness. We know when we left Egypt, the pasuk tells us Hamushim Alu. And the rabbis tell us, what does it mean, hamushim alu? It means 20%, a fifth, and 80% died in Egypt during the three days and were buried. What were those neshamot? They were neshamot who had sunk to such a low level, they couldn't leave. Those holy neshamot had already gone down to the 50th level of Tumah and couldn't be brought up. We know that only the neshamot that sunk to the 49th level of Tumah could be refined and saved. Nevertheless, at the time of the future Geulah, the future redemption, HaKadosh Baruch Hu himself will refine and restore even the neshamot that sank to the 50th level. These were the nedachim, the castaways in the land of Egypt. The good part of Batya, the daughter of Paroh, the one who found and saved Moshe Rabbeinu. She exited the Tumah of Mitzrayim. As we saw in the Pasuk, she went down to cleanse herself of the idolatry of Bet Paro. She was only mired in the 49 levels of, of Tumah, so we, she was still salvageable. And in the merit of rescuing Moshe Rabbeinu, retrieving his basket from the Nile, the power of the 49 levels of Binah represented through Moshe that Moshe was destined to attain enabled Batya, the daughter of Paroh, to extricate herself from the 49 levels of Tumah. The evil component of Batya, however, already sunk to the 50th level and separated. That being the case, the sparks of Kiddushah within that component could not be refined and rectified in Mitzrayim. After all, Moshe Rabbeinu himself only attained 49 levels. We say Moshe was 50 less one. These are the 49 levels of Binah. 
Therefore, the tikkun for those sparks of Kiddushah will only happen in the future. When Hashem Himself is going to refine all the neshamot, all the sparks of Kiddushah that sank to that 50th level. And that's what it means when the Pasuk says, the outcasts in the land of Egypt, those are the ones who already sank to the 50th level. Now, Moshe Rabbeinu refined all of the sparks of Kiddushah and the neshamot of Bnei Israel that sank to the 49th level of Tuman Mitzrayim in the merit of Batya, who rescued him from the Nile. To explain, just like she's coming up those 49 levels, at the same time, Moshe Rabbeinu is able to take all Bnei Israel in a similar manner beyond time and raise them up the 49 levels. Being the daughter of Paro, Melech Mitzrayim, she represented a holy neshama that fell to the lowest level of the Klippah of Mitzrayim, to the 49th level. As such, in her raising up, in essence, her soul was able to assist Moshe Rabbeinu in refining all of the neshamot of Bnei Israel who had fallen to that 49th level in Mitzrayim. Shalom HaMelech. He's in Nitzotz of Moshe Rabbeinu. He's a spark of Moses. Moshe salvaged the sparks of Kiddushah and Neshamot that fell into the 49th level of Tumah. He had the help of Batya, the daughter of Paron. Now, he's building the Ben HaMikdash. The Shekhinah of HaKadosh Baruch Hu is resting in the Kodesh HaKodashim. In the Bet HaMikdash on the Aron, where the Keruvim are, housing the Luchot, and this represents all 50 levels of Bina. We see from the Rav of Roshitz, he points out that the term Aron, Aleph, Resh, Vav, Nun, can be broken down into Or, Nun. The light of 50, Or, Nun indicating that the Aron itself contained the illumination of the Nun Sha'are Bina, the Nun levels, the 50 levels of Bina. Therefore, Shlomo HaMelech is thinking, with the Kiddushah of the Bet HaMikdash, he felt confident that he could rectify this component, the negative aspect of Batya, the daughter of Parah, he could lift her up through the Bed HaMikdash to 50 levels. And with her help, as she's coming those 50 levels, he's going to be able to rectify all the sparks of Kiddushah that remained within the 50th level of Tumah. Because he's building the Bed HaMikdash, marrying her at the same time, he's going to use her with the Bed HaMikdash to raise every spark that was impossible to raise. Through the marriage and the joy, through the dedication and the joy, everything's going to come up from the negativity to the positivity. Therefore, Shlomo HaMelech, who's a Nitzotz, who's a spark of Moshe Rabbeinu, he marries Batya Bat Paro, this evil component of Batya, specifically on the night he completes the Ben HaMikdash. His intention with her insistence is to refine and salvage the sparks of Kiddushah 
which are buried in the 50 levels of Tum'ah that remained in Mitzrayim. Thus, Shalom HaMelech is going to hasten the, the arrival of the Geulah. But as we mentioned above, it was not time for the Geulah. It had not arrived yet. It was impossible to build a Bet HaMikdash that would endure forever. Otherwise, Hashem's going to take His wrath out against the people and not the wood and the stones of the structure. So we now begin to comprehend HaKadosh Baruch Hu's statement to Yirmiyahu HaNavi, who's a Gilgul of Shlomo HaMelech. He's a reincarnation of Shlomo HaMelech. And what does he do? He says, Ki al api hamati haitali ha'ir hazot. Man hayom ha'shebanu ota ve'ad hayom hazeh la'atzira me'al panai. For this city has aroused my anger and my wrath in me from the day that it was built until this day, so that I should remove it from my presence. He's referring to the city of Shlomo HaMelech. He's alluding that the time has not yet come for the complete final tikkun. It didn't arrive yet. It was impossible to build the Bet HaMikdash with the Kiddushah of Moshe, a structure that would be invulnerable. HaKadosh Baruch Hu would need as to say to pour his wrath on Yisrael if such a temple existed. So we interpret the Pasuk as follows that the city aroused my anger and my wrath. This necessitated that I take out my wrath on Israel from the day they built it until this day. He says so that I would be able to act out against the wood and stones against the wood and stones of the Mikdash of Yerushalayim and not against B'nai Israel. Clearly, with the help of the genius of, of Rav Pinchas Freeman, we just touched the tip of the iceberg with respect to the wondrous ways of Hashem. Hashem orchestrates reincarnations. He rectifies neshamot until eventually all the neshamot will achieve their tikkun. And we merit a complete keulah. We have to appreciate how amazing the Torah is. We have so many questions. But there are so many answers. The analogy to the tip of the iceberg is so valid. Each of us has access to thousands of years of written commentary and explanations of the Torah for us to explore and to learn. We see that not only did Shlomo HaMelech think he wouldn't fail, but he thought that he could bring the Geulah ahead of its time. He was willing to make the attempt, no matter the risk, to himself personally. Who knows? Maybe he could have succeeded. He had to try. And we all have to try. It's up to Hashem to decide, but it, it's up to us to try. What I really find so remarkable is that I have a question that almost seems unanswerable. How do I understand the behavior of Shlomo HaMelech? How do I understand... Him marrying the wife, the daughter of Paro, on the night of the dedication of the Mikdash. And the rabbi used to tell us, and he told me specifically many times, there's no way to learn Torah without the help of Hashem. There's no way to learn without asking Hashem to please show me the answer. Guide me in the answer. Show me that it's there. And in this case, what's so sad is the answer was in front of me the whole time. But I never got to it. I never got to it. And what's beautiful is that it's there. And all we have to do is pick it up. It's unbelievable. 
people say, I want to find, I want to find, I want to find. Fine. We have to open our eyes. I, I, I'm looking to begin. When we go to war against your friends, this is this week's Berasha, and the Arizal brings the whole idea of Eshet Yefat Toar, a beautiful woman of a beautiful form. The whole idea of Yerech Yamim, he compares it to the month of Elul. The Zohar Chadash is very specific and really the Ari echoes the words of the Zohar Chadash. And he talks about also, we go into the, the understanding of the months, but now I'm just looking at the time. So I'm going to tell you what we're going to do. I will be Ezrat Hashem in the morning, record the 45-minute class, which we would continue now, but I don't think anyone's going to have patience to sit for another 45-50 minutes. And it's not fair to you. So I'm going to continue in the morning. I'll record the, the next class. And I'll post that class, God willing, in the morning. And that's going to explain Eshet Yefatoar, which we explain many times in many different ways. But this way of the Arizal, where he explains Yerach Yamim, a month of time as the month of Elul, and explains how we took back Elul. When, you know, it's interesting that one of the things that Esav, Yaakov Avinu took when he took the months, when they were splitting up, so to say, the world. He took Nisan. Nisan is the month of the Exodus. Iyar is when we're preparing for Matan Torah. Sivan is when we have the Torah. And we always talk about Esav having Tammuz. July, when we have Shiva Asar Tammuz. Av, when we have Tisha Av. And he would get Elul, the three months. And the rabbis tell us how Yaakov pulled back Elul. And then we start to understand what is Elul, what is the idea of Virgo, what is the idea of Virgo representing the, the virgin, representing the bride. It's very interesting, but I don't want to hold you here, so I'm going to do that, and I'm going to record it, and God willing, we'll post it in WhatsApp, and we have, uh, I think uh, we already started, we, we'll have a, a podcast set up now. I think it's already set up, so I'm going to look tomorrow and see if I can figure it out. And I will let everybody know. So that's the plan. We'll continue. And I want to wish everybody a Shabbat Shalom. I think it's just too late to, to do it now. And I'm going to open up if anybody wants to yell at me or has any questions. I'm used to getting yelled at even by crazy people in my dreams. <laughs> I think you could unmute if you like. Rabbi Bibi Yashikala, this was a fascinating, fascinating explanation that it's not exactly Lashon Hara you have to understand at least when it has to do with Sadiqim that there are special reasons of the Rosh uh for these things to uh, to take place so we don't have necessarily the, the ability to comprehend other than tonight the, the rationale for the things that we think people did wrong in essence they may have not been as wrong as we thought they were I, I, I say, you know, we, we always say you can't judge someone else unless he's standing in their shoes. The shoes represent the body of the neshama. And we can never judge anybody until we truly understand their tafkid, which always is different than our own. Every That's one true. of us has our own uh, purpose. So you're right. It's a lesson not to criticize. Yeah. Thank you so much. Thanks, everybody. Okay, so God willing, I'm going to try to... Record it either I'll do it tonight or I think I'll probably do it first thing in the morning and I'll have them upload it and post it. Good dreams, David. Good dreams. Great. I hope we have better dreams tonight. Uh, maybe dream. maybe King Solomon will come tonight and give me a nice story, you know. <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Thank have you. a good night. Thank you. Good night. Good night.